Hello and welcome to ACS Chemical Biology's podcast for Volume 2, Issue 5, sponsored by Invitrogen. I'm Evelyn Jabri, Executive Editor for the Journal. I'm joined by Managing Editor Sarah Tagan. Welcome, Sarah. Hello, everyone. We'd like to congratulate Editor-in-Chief Laura Kiesling and Editorial Advisory Board Member Steve Kowalskowalski on their recent election to the National Academy of Sciences. This is one of the highest honors afforded to a scientist in recognition for their distinguished and continuing achievements in original research. They join editorial board members Mike Marletta, Jennifer Doudna, and many of our editorial advisory board members at the NAS. We would also like to congratulate Board of Editors member Peter Seeberger for winning the Korber Prize. This prize, named for entrepreneur and philanthropist Kurt A. Korber, is one of Germany's most prestigious awards in science. The prize recognizes European scientists for pioneering research. We are proud of these distinguished scientists representing ACS Chemical Biology. In this issue, we feature articles from the labs of Helen Blackwell, Laura Kiesling, Joe Noel, Maurizio Pilecchia, and Jun Yin. We'll be speaking with Drs. Yin, Pilecchia, and Noel later in the podcast. But first, we want to highlight some interesting content you'll find only on our website. For our Ask the Expert feature, Jin Zhang from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine has joined us to answer your questions about kinase and second messenger signaling. I recently spoke with Jin about one of the questions our readers asked. Jin, one of our readers asked about the fluorescent assay that you developed that allows you to visualize kinase activity inside the cell. Can you tell me more about this assay? We generated a fluorescent probes that report kinase activity by changes in fluorescent resonance energy transfer, or FRET. Um, these probes serve as surrogate substrate for the kinase of interest. They are protein-based probes. Each contains a pair of fluorescent proteins that can undergo FRET, a substrate sequence for the kinase of interest, and a phosphoaminoacid binding domain, which is a module that binds to the phosphorylated peptides. So the, the idea is uh, once the substrate sequence gets phosphorylated, it can fall into the binding pocket of the phosphoaminoacid binding domain. This intramolecular binding uh, will synthesize a conformational change, which can be translated into a change in FRET. So we have used these probes in light cell fluorescent imaging to follow the activities of various kinases. And the new development is to take advantage of the ratiometric readout of these probes and to apply them in multi-well plate reader format for high-throughput compound screening. How sensitive are these FRET pairs? Can you tell me sort of how many molecules you might be able to observe, or how small of a compartment could you see inside of a cell? These assay or these probes are pretty sensitive. They use the fluorescent readout, uh, which has high sensitivity, in addition, these probes are actually, so I mentioned, these are surrogate substrates for the kinase of interest. So one active kinase molecule could phosphorylate multiple fluorescent probes to generate the response. And using this assay in single-cell imaging, we can routinely detect endogenous kinase activities. Although uh, the absolute sensitivity of the assay, that is how many active molecules we can detect, is something that we haven't determined experimentally. On the other hand, in the plate reader format, the sensitivity is lower. Part of the reason is we're using a population of live cells, and not all of them respond the same way. 
this will affect the signal-to-noise ratio and lower the sensitivity. But there's a lot of room for improvement, and we're working on that. Of course, each probe has its own dynamic range that's directly related to the assay sensitivity. That is also something we keep on improving for all the fluorescent probes that we build. In terms of the cellular compartments, the types of cellular compartments that we are interested in range from cellular organelles, such as nucleus and mitochondria, to signaling microdomains. And signaling microdomains that we can actually resolve using this technique can be below the resolution of light microscopy. This will rely on the genetic targetability of the probes that we build. For example, the fluorescent probe can be linked to a scaffolding protein and targeted to specific signaling complexes. And we can visualize the activities of subpool of kinase of interest in these so-called nanodomains, uh, which can be really small. Thanks for taking time to answer our readers' questions, Jin. You can read more about Professor Zhang's work in a paper she published in the July 2006 issue of ACS Chemical Biology. Jin will be answering your questions until this July, so please don't forget to submit them on the ACS Chemical Biology website at www.acschemicalbiology.org. We continue to define chem-bioglossary terms on the air. This month's keyword is gatekeeper residue, which is a keyword in a review by Elphick and colleagues. This residue within the ATP binding site of a kinase controls the accessibility of the substrate to an enlarged hydrophobic pocket. The May issue of ACS Chemical Biology features five exciting research papers. To learn more about the junior authors of these papers, please see the Introducing Our Authors feature in print and on the web. This month, we meet nine young scientists, Jinhua Chen, Pablo Cerrone, Ratmer Durda, Lucy Elphick, Grant Geske, Sarah Lee, Allison Lin, Yan Zhang, and Zi Cho. Read this section and get a younger chemical biologist perspective on their research. Zhen Yin, Chris Walsh, and colleagues developed a new genetically encoded peptide-based system for labeling proteins. They took advantage of differing specificities of phosphopanthenyl transferase enzyme to develop two site-specific protein labeling substrates that facilitate labeling of proteins with various small molecule tags. Welcome, Jin. Can you tell me a little bit more about your phage display screen? The native activity of this phosphopanthenyl transferase is to attach phosphopanthenyl arms derived from coenzyme A to a specific serine residues on the carrot proteins, such as acyl carrot proteins, or ACP, or peptidyl carrot proteins, PCPs. ACP or PCP, these are small domains embedded within much larger enzymatic assembly lines called uh, polyketide synthase, PKS, or non-ribosomal peptide synthase, NRPS. Our group, uh, uh, well, I was, a, I was a postdoc at Harvard Med School in Chris Walsh's group and also Michael uh, Burkhardt's group at UCSD. So we found out that phosphopanthenyl transferases such as SFP of b origin or ACPS of E. coli origin, they can take this uh, biotin conjugated CoA as a substrate and attach this uh, biotin phosphopanthenyl conjugate to that specific serine residues. Uh, on the PCP, uh, onto the ACP. So whenever we have an enzyme that can attach biotin to its downstream targets, then we have a 
phage selection systems. So potentially, you, uh, we can display uh, a library of proteins or peptides uh, onto the surface of the phage. And then uh, the selection of the downstream targets or the downstream substrates of these uh, phospho transferases can be accomplished by uh, loading those peptide uh, displayed phages with biotin and use strabavidin to fish out uh, the biotinylated phage particle that has been modified uh, by those phospho transferases. So how specific are these tags? They're quite specific. The way we do the selection is that we have a peptide library displayed on the surface of the phage. So the peptide library, the way we design it, that they all have this DSL motif, so this aspartic acid, serine, and the leucine motif, uh, because the serine is the site of the PPENT, the phospho arm attachment in the carrier okay. proteins, whether in ACP or PCP. So we keep this motif the same uh, in the peptide library. However, we actually randomize the eight residues beyond or C-terminals to this DSL motifs. The way we do the selection is that we actually carry out parallel selections. So one tube, you carry out selection with the SFP and the load the biotin CoA to the phase displayed peptide. And in another tube, you carry out selection with the ACPS, it's a different enzyme with different substrate specificity from the SFP, so also a phospho-pendant transfers. Selection is carried out in parallel, and then the sample of peptide has been diverged uh, into two pools of peptide through iterative rounds of phase selections. So at the fifth round, we actually end up with two pool of peptide. So one peptide specific for the SFP modification uh, with biotin CoA, and another pool of peptide specific for ACPS modification uh, with biotin CoA. And eventually, when we did the uh, kinetics, so we found the best peptide that ends up in the pool that enriched by the SFP, uh, which is this uh, named S6 peptide, is actually 400-fold uh, kinetically more active in terms of the KCAT over KM uh, to be the substrate of SFP uh, mm -hmm. than for the ACPS. And for this uh, A1 peptide, that uh, the best peptide we found from this pool enriched by the ACPS selections, so it's actually 30-fold preferred to be the substrate of ACPS in terms of the KCAT over KM than for the substrate of SFP. So these, these are pretty orthogonal peptide tags that uh, are specifically modified by either SFP or the ACPS uh, enzymes. So are you planning on using these tags in living cells? or? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, in the paper, we sort of demonstrated, uh, it's a proof concept demonstration that we labeled the cell surface transfer receptor with this A1 tag and uh, that can be specifically modified by ACPS. Uh, and we also uh, labeled the abdominal growth factor receptor, this EGF receptor with the S6 tag that's specifically recognized by SFP. And on the surface of the same cell with those two type of receptors in presence, uh, we can sequentially uh, label uh, one receptor, uh, the, the A1 tag, the transferrin receptor, with one dye, for the small molecule for resonance dye in one step, and then subsequently label the S6 tagged uh, EGFR receptors uh, with another dye of different colors. Proof concepts demonstrate that uh, we can use this technology to avoid and label uh, two different target proteins on the surface of the same cell. Uh, so right now in my own lab at the University of Chicago, uh, we're trying to uh, use this technology to label the herb family receptors. So these are the receptors that play a very important role in the cancer development and also tissue development. And there are like four different types of receptors in, in this family. So we're, we're trying to label uh, with those tags, label each individual receptors of this family and study their cell surface uh, homodimerization and heterodimerization of those type of receptors.
Well, thank you, Jen, and good luck with your new lab. Uh, thank you very much. In a paper by Maurizio Pelecchia and colleagues, the authors describe an approach to drug discovery that combines fragment-based screening with 2D NMR. Maurizio, you named your new method Pharmacophore by Interligand Nuclear Overhauser Effect, or ILOE. Can you describe it for our listeners? Certainly. The, the method that we have developed is based on the use of a particular uh, nuclear magnetic resonance experiment that we used to identify from mixtures of fragment libraries um, a pair of weak binders. And in particular, we look for weak binders that they sit on adjacent pockets on the surface of uh, a given protein target. So now the experiment is based on uh, an effect, which is the um, interligand NOE, which is based on a protein-mediated transfer of an NMR signal from one ligand to another while they are sitting on the surface of the protein target. So that's why we're very excited about applying this meter to drug discovery projects, because not only we can identify a pair of binders, but by uh, analyzing the 2D NMR spectra that we obtain, we can also determine the relative orientation and position within the binding site. Yeah, Amazing. that's why we are very <laughs> excited when we apply that to a number of protein targets, and we found out that actually it's very efficient in finding small molecules that not only are then the building blocks of bi-affinity ligands, but then they have um, very high selectivity for the particular target. In your paper, you mentioned that you can use this method to piece together drug candidates. So how can you do that? Yes, in the paper, we describe two different approaches. You know, as I, as I try to explain, what the, the method is good at is finding from small but uh, focused libraries of chemical fragments. Those are not molecules that are intended to be heat compounds or drug leads. Those are just fragments of potential drug leads. So they have very small molecular weight, less than 200, and very few functional groups. So the method allows us to find pair of compounds, pair of binders that they bind on the surface of the protein, and of course with the goal of linking those two together to obtain high affinity ligands. Now, we describe two different approaches to do that. One is the simplest, of course, is to exploit the NMR information to get the relative orientation of the two uh, individual uh, components of the pair to devise a, a chemical linker, and then we do synthetic chemistry. The other approach that I thought was very intriguing that um, Jinghua Chen, the first uh, author of the paper, suggested was, well, maybe there is a number of compounds that are already commercially available. Actually, we can count several millions of compounds that are commercially available. His idea was maybe we can use the NMR approach to identify those chemical scaffolds that they bind to a particular protein and then use those chemical substructures as a starting point for a pharmacophore search. And the pharmacophore search means we use those chemical structures to compare those chemical substructures with those of compounds that are already commercially available from large collections of compounds. So the second approach was applied uh, in this particular case. We identified a few compounds that match the pair that we have found by NMR. And we purchased those molecules and we test them. There were only 27 molecules. We tested them. And to our surprise, you know, one of them was indeed very, very active against the protein kinase P38, which was the subject of this paper. 
but we can also do the, the most straightforward approach, as I said, which is to design a linker, a chemical linker between the two pairs. And there we can make use of the information we get from the NMR experiment that determine the relative position of the two components of the pair, but also their relative distance, rough relative distance. Sounds like it has a lot of potential. It has a lot of potential. We have applied that to a protein kinase because, of course, there is a lot of interest in protein kinases. And our hypothesis here was that because this approach does not require the protein kinase to be activated, because it's not an enzymatic assay, but it's a binding assay that we are using, our hypothesis was that those fragments will lock in a preferential conformation of the kinase, which may be different from one kinase to another when the proteins are not activated whereas mm -hmm. it's known that when the proteins are activated, as they are catalyzing very similar reactions, different protein kinases, they have a very similar binding pocket for the cofactor ATP that we are targeting. Another observation that we made about a few months ago when we published another paper re related to the use of the interligand NOEs is that we can target also proteins for which we don't have uh, an enzymatic assay in hand, such as protein-protein interactions or even protein-membrane interactions, as we demonstrated. So the potential is that we can use the uh, approach to probe the molecular surface of a protein with the hypothesis that if a pair of binders prefer a particular sub-pocket or sub-location on the, on the protein surface, it's very likely that that surface has some functional properties in a cellular context. So we apply that to another, other protein targets, which we could demonstrate, actually, that we can use the high affinity ligands that they come out of this project to then determine the function of the protein in a cell. So the inhibitor that you found using this method, how specific was that inhibitor? Our hypothesis was that targeting the inactive form of the kinase, we should be able to lock it into a conformation which is unique to that particular protein kinase, in this case, P38-alpha. So when we add our inhibitor in hand, we, we asked the question, you know, is, this, is this selective or we just found another ATP mimic? that we could have found, for example, by using high-throughput screening. Mm -hmm. And we decided to collaborate with Invitrogen, and they are very good at doing these selectivity screens against a large number of, of protein kinases. And we selected a small panel of protein kinases which are highly related with one another, which we report in the publication. You know, when we uh, started this collaboration with Invitrogen, they were very excited because they say in the many, many compounds that they have tested during these uh, panels of screens, they have never seen a compound which is so selective for one isoform of um, P38 versus the others. So our compound is exclusively selective for P38-alpha, which is the target that we have used, versus other P38 isoforms, which are very, very close to P38. So, and again, I think this demonstrates our, or at least suggests that our initial hypothesis was correct, <laughs> that uh, targeting the inactive form of the kinase is probably a better way to go in terms of um, uh, engineering high affinity compounds, which are actually very selective. I think we are all very excited, of course, that this, the method uh, in principle is applicable to any protein. That mm -hmm. is another, um, another advantage for those that they are more into the NMR aspect of, of our publication. They will appreciate that we don't need to have specific labeling of the protein target, which is what is most traditionally done in NMR spectroscopy. And it's also important to underline that the approach works better for larger protein targets, which is usually not the case for traditional NMR spectroscopy approaches, which are usually limited to small to medium-sized proteins. And again, this is because we are looking at the ligands while they are in the bound form rather than detecting 
the signals from the protein target directly. Well, thank you very much, Maurizio. Thank you. A paper by Yan Zhang and Joe No explores how the prolar peptide isomerase, PIN1, is inhibited. PIN1 is an important protein in the development of various types of cancers, so understanding its mechanism may yield important new insight into fighting these diseases. Welcome, Joe. Can you tell me a little bit more about what PIN1 does in the cell? PIN1 is actually quite interesting. We began working on it a little over a decade now in collaboration with my colleague here at the Salk Institute, Tony Hunter. And at that time, all we knew about PIN1 was that it played a very important role in the cell cycle progression, that is, how cells decide when they need to divide. Uh, and in addition, we knew that it belonged to, it appeared, a unique class of enzyme that was capable of isomerizing peptide bonds, uh, particularly peptide bonds that had a proline amino acid in them. When we solved the crystal structure of the protein back in 1996, we were met with a very pleasant surprise because the crystal structure immediately suggested how PIN1 affected the cell cycle, mainly because it bound to a very unique sequence that involved a phosphorylated amino acid, in this particular case a serine or a threonine residue, that sat next to a proline. And that actually opened up our eyes quite a bit because we knew from a lot of studies over the last two decades that that particular sequence, a serine or a threonine residue next to a proline, was found in a large number of proteins, not only involved in cell cycle progression, but in a number of very important signaling cascades in cells. There are a whole class of enzymes known as protein kinases that specifically recognize a serine or a threonine residue next to proline. So now we actually had an enzyme that could recognize that sequence motif in proteins and go in and actually catalyze an isomerization of the peptide bond. And that would alter the structure of that particular protein, and that became the basis for the last decade's worth of studies into PIN1 and its role in regulating how cells decide when they divide or when they don't divide. What we've learned over the last, I would say, five to seven years is that not only is PIN1 important in that cell cycle, but it's also playing a very, very critical role in cancer cells. And cancer cells are unregulated. That is, they don't seem to know when to stop dividing. And PIN1 activity is essential for that. So we've been working now over the last few years to try to understand how we might intervene in that process and switch that enzyme activity off utilizing what we would call structure-based design. So in your paper, you actually describe an inhibitor that you've discovered that actually was part of your structure-based design. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, this has been a wonderful multi-institutional collaboration. The postdoc in Tony Hunter's lab that originally discovered PIN1 now has his own lab at Harvard Medical School. His name is Kunping Lu. And Kunping Lu, in collaboration with another laboratory at the Max Planck in Halle, Germany, the laboratory of Gunther Fischer, who actually discovered, ironically, peptidylprolocystrans isomerases, discovered a non-natural peptide a few years ago now that seemed to act as a very potent um, and highly specific inhibitor of the PIN1 proloisomerase activity. We've actually been collaborating with both Kunping Lu's lab and Gunther Fischer's lab over the last five years. And being a crystallographer, structural biologist, we obtained the peptide from Gunther Fischer's laboratory and began um, crystallization trials. 
and Yan Zhang from my laboratory was very successful now in growing crystals of PIN1 in complex with this particular peptide to actually look and peer in at the atomic level as to how it's actually inhibiting the enzyme. And what we found is that this particular inhibitor binds very specifically in the enzyme active site where normally the substrate would actually reside, and it binds in a very high affinity conformation that ironically resembles the mode of natural product binding to other important classes of proisomerases like FKBP or even cyclophilin. So in fact, this particular peptide adopts a conformation that resembles the mode of FK506 binding to FKBP or rapamycin, which binds also to FKBP to shut off its activity. That's very interesting. I guess that was unexpected. Very unexpected because this particular peptide lacks some of the natural product-like features of the FK506 or the rapamycin molecule. Those two molecules are natural in origin. They have a peptide portion, and they also have a polyketide portion. In our case, the particular peptide that we've used utilizes a non-covalent hydrogen bond to mimic the conformation that's adopted by FK506 or rapamycin, and that in the latter case of FK506 and rapamycin, that conformation is held in place by the polyketide backbone of the natural product. So the comparison of those two structures has given us some important clues as to the next step in the process, which is to further modify this particular peptide so that it adopts a more rigid conformation so that its potency will go up. And that will also allow us to deal with some problems that are associated with the peptide at this point from the standpoint of treating cancer cells, and that has to do with the phosphorylation of the peptide. So we think that if we can improve the potency now based on its structure, we can actually get rid of the phosphate that's on the peptide, which is causing some problems in terms of bioavailability of this particular inhibitor in, in cancer cells. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Evelyn. Rasmur Durda, Laura Kiesling, and colleagues are looking for growth conditions that support self-renewal of embryonic stem cells, or ES cells. To date, finding these growth conditions that maintain undifferentiated, pluripotent stem cells has been challenging. Using self-assembled monolayers that contain defined surfaces, the authors have designed a surface that promotes stem cell proliferation. The authors developed surfaces that varied in sequence, size, and density of the laminin-derived peptide. By staining ES cells for markers associated with pluripotency, Kiesling and colleagues were able to show that the sequence and density of the peptide they used played a crucial role in maintaining the self-renewal capability. This approach allows for the systematic testing of substrates that might promote ES cell growth. In a paper by Helen Blackwell and colleagues, the authors report the N-phenylacetanoyl L-homocerine lactones, or AHLs, can promote or inhibit the bacterial communication system known as quorum sensing. Quorum sensing enables bacteria to manipulate their behavior based on their population. Some of these behaviors can be detrimental, as in the bacterial community's decision to initiate infection. Or the result can be beneficial, as when symbiotic bacteria use quorum sensing to commence mutually beneficial relationships with their hosts. Small molecules are the important signaling compounds in this process, and AHLs are the best characterized of these small molecules. The authors use genes from the symbiotic bacteria Vibrio fischeri, 
which colonizes the light-producing organs of certain fish and squids, to test the ability of synthetic compounds to induce or inhibit quorum sensing. They created a focused library of non-native AHLs that were based on the structure of known quorum sensing antagonists, 4-bromo-PHL. Blackwell and colleagues tested the effects of these compounds on quorum sensing behaviors and found a number of new agonists and antagonists. They observed that the position of the substituents on PHL phenyl ring strongly influenced the outcome. Substitutions at the 3 position created agonists, while substitutions at the 2 or 4 position created antagonists. These novel molecules provide a new set of tools that will shed light on the interesting process of quorum sensing. Today's podcast is sponsored by Invitrogen. Boost your kinase research with Invitrogen's comprehensive protein and assay portfolio. Five fluorescent biochemical assays, 285 human kinases, and 40 cell lines for 19 pathways lead you to the right solution. Make your kinome work less piecemeal. Empower your research at www.invitrogen.com slash kinasebiology1. Thanks to all of you for listening. Join us next month for more ACS Chemical Biology highlights and interviews with our authors. To learn more about our journal, please visit www.acschemicalbiology.org.